Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 23rd, 2018. On this week's show, Howard Bryant of ESPN will be here to talk about the militarization of sports. We'll also be joined by Slate's Christina Cotarucci to discuss U.S. soccer's decision to call up Jaylene Hinkle, who'd previously turned down a roster spot on the women's national team rather than wear a rainbow jersey during Pride Month. And Deadspin's Dom Cosentino will be here for a conversation about whether flag football is the future of football. Joining me from our DC studio is a man who is no longer in Iceland, the author of Word Freak and a Few Seconds of Panic, Mr. Stefan Fatsis. Welcome back, Stefan. Thanks. Uh, how's your trip? It's great. I'll talk about some of it in the afterball. Should we not ruin it? No, we're give not going to ruin it. No. Give us one, one tidbit. I bought a team handball ball. Is it like a special Iceland branded ball? Or is I it just couldn't like a find a special ball? Iceland branded ball, but I think it's a Euro championships replica ball. Cause like the, you know, the, the leather one is like 90 bucks. So I went with the, the replica one. Maybe I'll bring it in next week and we can toss it around. It's heavier than I thought it would be. Did it, you it's got some heft <laughs> the handball? Did you go to the penis museum? Did not walked by the penis museum. It was closed when we were walking by it, though. You know that they have a sculpture there that's like a mold of all of the penises of the team handball team. <laughs> yes, I remember that. We talked about it on this program, I believe. Um, worth another trip to Iceland, totally. probably. Yeah. All right. On that note, let us uh, kick off the show. Stefan, do you have uh, an intro that you want to read for us? So... I was out of the country for a baseball's all-star game, so I had to catch up on the festivities online. There was a co-ed softball tournament featuring games from the five branches of the military called the All-Star Armed Services Classic, presented by T-Mobile. 29 Medal of Honor recipients were recognized on the field before the game. One of them threw out the first pitch. The national anthem was sung by a giant chorus, dressed and shaped like the American flag, and five military jets screamed overhead afterward. In a piece for the public radio show Only a Game this past weekend, our friend Howard Bryant noted that the All-Star Game reminded him of an old joke with a new twist. I went to a military parade and a baseball game broke out. Howard, of course, writes for ESPN, talks on NPR, and is the author of the new book The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Good to have you back, Howard. No, good morning, guys. How are you? Good. Uh, your piece for Only a Game reinforces the feeling somewhere between queasiness and revulsion <laughs> that a lot of us have about sports today and how sports have allowed themselves to be co-opted by this false connection between the games and patriotism and militarism. How and why has this happened? I think that you can't have any of this conversation without 9-11. It just, it, we're still 17 years later dealing with the legacy of the towers falling. And I think that what I what I find really interesting now that the 
the, the, the book is finished and we're still talking about these different issues. We're talking about some of these issues more now because I think that a lot of people, and I don't quite understand why, but a lot of people, when we talk about this stuff, have said, I never thought of it that way. Or I, I, I didn't notice that. And I come, I'm looking at this going, how can you not notice a flag the size of, the, of, 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 a, of a football field or of a tennis court? It's, it's, it's all become normal. And I think what's really even more sort of chilling about it is that I was at Yankee Stadium that day in, in 2000. One, you know, covering the covering the Yankees at the Bergen Record, and I remember their feeling. I remember that feeling that the entire month of September and all the half of September and all of October and part of November going into the World Series. I remember feeling as though we needed the ballpark a little bit there because people were looking at each other in ways they had never looked at each other before. That that you needed it. You we needed at some. You know, everybody was shattered. But 17 years later, it feels completely different. It feels totally inappropriate, and it's commercialized. And what I like most about this is that it's the veterans themselves who have something to say. In your piece for Only a Game, Howard, you mentioned the paid patriotism stuff. The 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 McCain report? Yeah, the contracts between the Pentagon and sports leagues where actually money was changing hands. Um, to have these patriotic displays on the fields. Um, the one that I didn't know about that you mentioned was the Air Force paying NASCAR one and a half million dollars for veterans to shake hands with Richard Petty. Uh, that that was a new one on me. But I just I must say, like I understand and agree with everything um, that you're saying intellectually. But I was at the All Star Game and it was really affecting to see all of those Medal of Honor winners on the field and to see them like shaking hands with all of the players. And I think just, I just have to be honest about the way that made me feel and about the reason that this works and that the leagues do it and that the military does it is that it's really effective as propaganda. And I think we can hold these two ideas in our minds at the same time that it it's really it feels wrong and gross a lot of the time, but also as like individual moments, it can be really powerful. Absolutely. But it's also that we know that we're not supposed to question this, that it's That's the th- right. it is a no lose proposition for both the military and the leagues, because anyone who says that that wasn't affecting that I was <laughs> repulsed by seeing those Medal of Honor recipients. You're the non-patriot. You are not patriotic, and you are you're you're not American. Well, I also feel it like the Medal be of effective Hon- if you're going to spend that much money on all of this. And by the way, why does it need a corporate sponsor? Because these things cost money. Because they're all profiting off of this, and that undermines the entire spirit of it. But of course, it's affecting. You're supposed to feel something. That's what theater is. That's what propaganda is. But at the same time, you have to remember, as Stefan just said, and it makes it, 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 it makes all of this far less attractive, is that you also have a president who last year has essentially decided to couple any disagreement with this as being unpatriotic and un-American. That, that is not affecting at all to me. Yeah, for sure. And I would say that if something like that Medal of Honor um – ceremony on the field before the all-star game was extremely rare and reserved for like, okay, this is the first time the all-star game is in DC and however long a time. And like, let's do this as like a very special 
once in a generation sort of event, it would obviously have a different valence than. Um, yeah, you're going to get another one tonight at some ballpark somewhere <laughs> across America. Right. Um, and as you mentioned in your first answer, I think the interesting thing is, all right, who are the people um, who are speaking out against this? Um, and you highlighted one of them in your piece. Um, I want you to you know, maybe tell us about who that is and, and um, what his, his views on this are. Well, one of the guys I really enjoyed talking to was uh, William Astori, and I found Bill Astori simply by looking at – when I was researching the book, I was trying to find people who were dissenting on this, and I wanted to find out just what their thoughts were. And I ran across him on the website Tom Dispatch, and also I think that's the Nation Institute's uh, website, and then also he has his own he has his own blog, Bracing Views. and. He'd been writing about this for years, and I, I didn't know who he was, and it was fascinating how incisive his commentaries were, and I was like, he's writing my book right now. i got to go talk to this guy. And on top of that, it was the fact that he was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And so I had reached out to him, and we had some serious email exchanges and then several you know deep conversations about this. And one of the things that Bill talked about that we didn't even really get into in the piece was – the perpetual state of war, that we don't even talk about peace anymore. And one of the things that really does sort of get to him is this idea, and we didn't put this on the tape, but his whole feeling about after 9-11 that the response from President Bush was to go shopping. He's like, we don't have a stake in this as Americans. So going to the ballpark is the least, it's literally the least you can do. We have no responsibilities. Let the let the professionals handle it. And therefore, and all you need to do is come to the ballpark and cheer and don't question anything. And cheer and be exposed to recruiting pitches as well. I mean, it, it ultimately, no, absolutely. as, well, that's as what this Bill is all about. story says in the piece very candidly, and I think you also quoted a former general, right? That yeah. this is like, be prepared <laughs> to be recruited to be in the military. Uh, Bill Astori says in the piece that he lived in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and he was horrified to show up at the Little League World Series and find an Air Force van inviting the kids in to play video games. Yeah, I sit there and play Call of Duty. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, and, and talk about a sweet spot for an 11-year-old kid. Hey, want to come in and, and, and you know, play on the PS4? But you're being manipulated. And by the way, where are your parents? And so it it really is a it's an interesting place that we're in and that that conflate not even the conflation between the the authoritarian figures at the ballpark, but just straight the just the straight approach in the military that this is a revenue. It's a revenue stream on one hand. It's also a recruiting opportunity on another. And then the lack of transparency on the part of the sports teams. These guys have never once volunteered the fact that this was paid for, that this is propaganda. They tried to sell it to the public that this was organic and, hey, man, support the troops and we're here for you. They're making money off of this. And I can tell you, you want to hear something really hilarious uh, in, you know, that should go down the annals of PR, PR disasters. When the McCain Flake report first came out, I called an executive over at Major League Baseball who was enraged enraged at John McCain and Jeff Flake for what they did. I can't believe what they did to us. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? And he says, he says, you know, we're not making, that report made it sound like we were making millions off of this. We're not making any money. I mean, we're charging them like a third of what we could charge them. And I'm like, I don't think that's what you want to say. 
I'm curious for your thoughts on why this wasn't um, an enduring thing, say, around World War II, because we've all read and seen photos of how Major League Baseball in particular was kind of co-opted for the war effort, promotions, um, you know, selling war bonds, the players wearing patches. But I'm wondering if we didn't see Why that. For- yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, wo- I'm wondering if that's because, A, like everyone in American society was a part of that war effort. And so people and, kind and, of understood what war and scores meant and of, was. And scores of, of Major League Baseball players were as well. And also maybe the second part is, Maybe, like Howard, you were saying about how we're in kind of a perpetual war now. Maybe there was a sense that, you know, in 1945, the war was over. And so we didn't need to do this stuff anymore. Well, I don't think there was a sense that was, I don't think there was a sense of it. There was a relief that it was over. You're looking at, I'm always fascinated by those statistics when I go back and you look at the numbers and you say, wow, you know, a half million Americans died in World War II. 500,000 Americans died in World War II. Then you look at the numbers and you go, oh, 20 million Russians died in World War II. Absolutely, there was a feeling that this was over, a relief that it was over. You don't want to go back to that. You want to make sure it never happens again. And part of the reason, I think, Josh, you got it right, was that more people had to participate. I mean, I'm 49 years old, and I only know friend of mine in my circle, one person who's been overseas in combat, and that was one student, one uh, classmate at Temple for Gulf War One in 91. I think he was in, I think he was in Kuwait or or Iraq. I want to get back to your conversations with Bill Astori and, and what they reflect about how veterans, many of them, I think, think about all of this, because it's not you know, the, the ceremonies at the All-Star Game are lovely, and these people do deserve recognition um, for working for the country and serving the country. But the flip side of that, of course, is examples in other media like the book Thank You for Your Service about the, 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 the tragic after effects that yep. men experience and women experience. So what is it? Bill, Billy Lynn's Long Walk or something. I think that's sure. the name of that book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that these efforts at is manufacture patriotism obscure? Yeah, 100%. I was talking with Bill about this, and I was I could hear his wife in the background, his wife, uh, Christine, in the background, and he's like, yeah, my wife gets mad about, you know, mad about it when I talk about this. This was when I was interviewing for the book, not the piece. And he, he was talking about how, you know, when he would watch a Red Sox game, he's a big Red Sox fan, and he would see, you know, a, 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 you know, a vet come in who's, in a wheelchair or who's, you know, on crutches, you know, missing a leg, come on out to throw the first pitch to Dustin Pedroia. And he would just get enraged by that. And he would be, you know, and they would all give the guy a standing ovation and then they'd go on and play ball. And he would be like, well, the message that's being sent there is not just, you know, thank you for your service, but it's, hey, that guy's okay. See, there's no cost. Look at him. He's out. He's in front of 40,000 people. Everything's, you know, sure. He doesn't have a leg, but he's great. Because look at all this ceremony. 
And he does believe that it obscures the real cost of what's taken place with what's really going on here. And the question is whether this has anything to do with sports, of course. And, and what sports does, and exactly. Be, well, sports can be a way of demonstrating care and concern for the plight of, 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 of victims of war and, and people that have served the country. Yeah, with but the veterans, I thought what, they like props. Uh-huh. Right. They but then they get like this is up. crass commercialism. And then the question is, why are sports, why are leagues, why do leagues participate now? And you quoted one baseball executive in your piece saying it's not out of patriotism, but it's become out of fear, the fear of being called unpatriotic. Leagues have been painted into a corner. There's no turning back. Yeah, he's like, well, I remember exactly what he told me, too. We're having lunch. And he's like, imagine what we, we would get killed if we were the first ones to stop this. We would get killed. And I'm like, would you? Or would it be another news cycle that lasted 48 hours and then life would go on? But what really struck me about that is that you don't even know why you're doing this anymore. You just do it to do it. And that's what Bill was saying at the end of the piece. Well, we we unfurl the big old flag because that's what we do now. And that is the you know, that is the exact antithesis of patriotism and and any of it. And, and I do agree that the, the other question is, why are we even having this conversation about sports? Why is sports here? Uh, you know, why is this the staging ground? And I think that one of the things that really drives some of the, the veterans and the players, Sean Doolittle, Brandon McCarthy, uh, these guys actually do think about this stuff. It's the uniforms, too. It's the it's the selling of the desert camo jerseys and the hats and the, you know, and the the alternate jerseys and the fact that I was watching the Mets in a a Reds game once, and they were both wearing desert camo style alternate jerseys. And what does this say about what we're infusing into our culture? It's not a small thing. It's not something that you're just sort of making up. And I remember one thing that Sean, because, you know, Sean Doolittle, by the way, is the distant cousin of the legendary World War II pilot, Jimmy Doolittle, who led the raid over Tokyo in 1942. And Sean, who was an all-star pitcher with the Washington Nationals, Josh, you saw him at the all-star game. One of the things that he was upset about coming from a military family is the fact that the, the Memorial Day uh, alternate jerseys, not only were they gray when they should be black because it's a day of, of commemorating death and service of the, of the sacrifice that these guys have made for the country, but also they had stars on the hats. You know, they had five stars on the side of the hats and five stars on the, sh- on the sleeves of the jerseys. And they were like, look, if you talk to any military person, stars are earned you don't profit off of stars. You earn your stars. And this is the sort of like runaway commercialism that makes this stuff look so fake. Howard, I don't think we should exit this segment without talking about Pat Tillman. Well, Pat Tillman is the is the guy that motivated, and thank you for bringing him up, he's the one that motivated Bill Astori to actually talk about this when it comes oh, wow. to sports. He, he had been talking about it in terms of Hollywood and the movies and TV and the culture. But when he started to see what was really happening in sports, the juxtaposition of what took place with Pat Tillman really fired him up, especially when you look at how the military handled the aftermath of Pat Tillman's death. In in addition to talking about 9-11 as a part of this, you really can't talk about how this has gone sideways without talking about Pat Tillman. Absolutely. Howard Bryant is the author of The Heritage. He also writes for ESPN and talks on NPR. And it's a good guy, Howard. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) Thank you. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Stefan and I are going to be talking about Tiger Woods, who was close to winning the British Open. He was in contention. He was in the lead. It was exciting. Golf was exciting again. Go Tiger. Uh, If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus. It is just $35 
for the first year. And you can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey there, it is your local, friendly neighborhood podcast host. I just wanted to note that before we get into this next segment, there was breaking news right before we were about to put the show out, and that is that the final roster for this uh, Tournament of Nations that the U.S. women's soccer team is playing in this week came out. There were 25 players on the initial roster, and they cut two players before the games. And one of those two was Jaylene Hinkle, who we're speaking about in this upcoming segment. So Jaylene Hinkle, not on the final U.S. soccer roster for these games. Uh, All right, here's our segment. Last year, professional soccer player Jaylene Hinkle turned down the opportunity to join the roster of the U.S. women's national soccer team. It was an odd move, one that Hinkle, who plays as a defender for the North Carolina Courage of the National Women's Soccer League, did not explain at the time. But a few months ago, she went on the Christian TV show The 700 Club to reveal that she'd refused that call-up because she did not want to wear a jersey with a rainbow number on it, a special uniform the national team was wearing for Pride Month. Here she is talking about that decision. I'm essentially giving up the, the one dream little girls dream about their entire life, and I'm saying no to. It was very disappointing. And I think that's where the peace trumped the disappointment because I knew in my spirit I was doing the right thing. I knew that I was being obedient. And like, just because you're obedient doesn't make it easy. It turned out that Hinkle was not actually giving up her dream. Last week, U.S. Soccer called her up again, placing her on the roster for this month's Tournament of Nations, which begins on Thursday uh, with the U.S. women playing against Japan in Kansas City. This time, Hinkle accepted the roster spot, and she is training this week alongside the team's openly gay star, Megan Rapinoe, and playing for the openly gay coach, Jill Ellis. Our colleague, Christina Cotarucci, wrote a piece about Hinkle last week, and she joins us now. Hey, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, In that piece, you argued that U.S. soccer had sold out um, its LGBTQ fans and players by inviting Hinkle back after she had rejected the invitation in 2017. Can you explain your thinking there? Yeah. um, U.S. soccer, U.S. women's soccer, I should say, um, is really well known for being extremely supportive of its LGBTQ fans. Um, Part of the reason for that is that there are just a ton of lesbian and gay fans of women's soccer. It's widely known that there are many out professional players of women's soccer. Um, They've done promotions for their gay fans. And Jaylene Hinkle, that's the reason why there was a rainbow number to begin with. Um, Jaylene Hinkle, the fact that she not only refused to play on the um, U.S. women's national team, but then 
nearly a year later, went on a talk show to specifically say that she was, you know, following God's will, that um, she sort of was making herself a martyr. She said on the show that if she never got called up again to play for the U.S. Women's National Team, it would be that was God's will for her to set an example for um, other Christians to essentially reject LGBTQ equality. In 2015, when the Supreme Court affirmed the right to marry for everyone in the U.S., uh, she tweeted about the ruling, the world is falling farther and farther away from God. All that can be done by believers is continue to pray. This is somebody who is not shy about being anti-gay. And the fact that the U.S. women's national team would bring somebody like that on to play with, uh, you know, one of their best players who is gay um, in front of all their LGBTQ fans who have been some of the biggest supporters of the team is essentially saying that the respect for their identity is not a prerequisite for playing on the team. I think it's a workplace issue, honestly, because there are so many gay players as much as it is uh, a moral issue of what a coach should possibly do. One of the questions that comes up for me is the sort of hypocrisy in her accepting the second call up, frankly. I mean, what's the difference? You didn't want to wear a jersey with some colored numbers on the back, but you're willing to play with players who are openly gay and a coach who's openly gay. I'm not quite sure I understand. Not that oh, I expect I, myself to understand no, where feel, the line is. I feel like I do understand that. I think there is like kind of a twisted logic to it. I feel like if you're a Christian bigot like she is, the idea is, oh, like Jesus hung out with prostitutes. Like I can hang out with people that are sinners. So don't ask, don't tell. And or no, maybe it's like Love I can the sin or hate the sin. Or I can like try to sure. try to convert them or or explain to them why what they're doing is sinful or wrong. But by putting but a shirt on, you're I'm promoting the promoting. homosexual lifestyle. Or like you're advertising that like being gay is okay. Like I think it actually makes sense. I think it's like obviously twisted and very wrong, but I can follow. And I think, you know, as Christina, as you said, like going on the 700 club, she's able to like brag about it and say, like, look at what I did. Like, I here's like this great example that I set for other Christians. I think that she kind of accomplished what she wanted to accomplish. Oh, yeah. And I think if that, you know, in a better world, the U.S. women's national team would have made an equal and opposite response to that by saying like, okay, fine, you know, it's your right to go on this Christian talk show and say that by not, you know, the, the what really bothers me um, the most about this is that it wasn't like the U.S. women's national team was going to come out and say like, you know, we oppose the North Carolina ban on transgender people using the appropriate bathroom. There was no political agenda attached to it. It was the rainbow symbol was something she objected to just because it represented the the LGBTQ community in general. And if the U.S. women's national team had come out and said, you know, like, go ahead, go on that show, say what you want, but we're not going to allow that kind of bigotry on our team, I think that would have been a, a really powerful statement. And now they're in a tough spot where... Um, they've they've elevated her in that story even more so by inviting her onto the team a second time. I wasn't even following the story when it came out because I am not a big sports fan. I'm only really a fan of the gay athletes on the team. Um, but now I feel like it's my duty to like organize some type of boycott or participate in some sort of protest against the UN's, U.S. women's national team. Um, and now they're in a spot where if that does happen, if fans or players or former players like Abby Wambach, who's like one of the 
team's best all-time athletes who recently retired. Um, if, if any of these people want to come out and speak against the decision to allow Jalene Hinkle on the team, they'll cause an even bigger controversy if they decide not to invite her back for the Women's World Cup, for instance. Um, I think the things that are going to be interesting to look for this week and going forward, if she solidifies a place on the roster, there have been injuries at her position, which is a, she's a defender. Um, she clearly is a good player. She's done well in the in the professional women's soccer league. Um, it puts Jill Ellis in a difficult position. Jill Ellis's job is to win soccer games and to qualify for the World Cup and to repeat as World Cup champions. So she wants to do everything in her power to enable the United States to do that. But as you pointed out, Christina, it puts the fan base and teammates in a difficult position. I don't know how outspoken Hinkle is about her beliefs with her teammates, but she's obviously been playing with gay athletes her entire career. Um, that's undoubted. Um, so the two questions that I think are worth, they're going to be worth examining are how does this affect the fan base? Are they going to boo her every time she touches the ball, which is what happened in Portland recently in the first game after she had gone on the 700 club? And will it cause any kind of dissension within the team? Um, people who have coached women's sports have argued, like Anson Dorrance in North Carolina, who's been coaching the 21-time U.S. national champions for the last you know 30 years, have argued that one of the most important things with women's teams is the sense of cohesion off the field leading to cohesion on the field. If this creates any sort of dissent, which I can't see how it wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. well, we don't then know. what do teams do? We don't know. We it's, don't know. It's possible. We haven't done the reporting to say. Sure. It's possible that – Jill Ellis like asked everyone on the team and they were like, yep. yeah, we're cool. Like she can come in and play here. We don't know. It's possible that she's had conversations with Megan Rapino and other out players. We don't know. I think the thing that I want to hear about from you, Christina, that I find the most fascinating is this notion of whether we should hold women's teams to a higher standard. And I think you can't look at that question in a vacuum because there are so many more out um, gay women athletes than men. And so it does become kind of a workplace issue. And so it's not possible to just have the conversation like, oh, like we wouldn't ask this of men's team. So it's not fair to ask it of women's team. So I'm just curious how you kind of how the, how those ideas <laughs> cohabitate in your in your head. Yeah, I think about that a lot because um, I as a gay person, I see that happening even within the gay community where women, um, lesbians and queer women will hold like women's parties, for instance, more accountable for not being accommodating of trans and non-binary queer people where I've never had a gay male friend say like, oh, I'm really upset that this like gay men's bar is not a doesn't have, um, you know, gender inclusive restrooms. So I think a lot about the different standards that we hold men and women to in terms of um, general LGBTQ equality issues. Um, you make a good point, Josh, that there are a lot of a lot more um, gay women involved in professional sports than there are gay men, at least out ones. I think there's one right now in men's sports and it's a soccer player mm -hmm. in Major League Soccer. Yeah, Colin Martin of Minnesota, Minnesota United. Yeah. Um, but I still feel like there's a little bit I feel like people are more likely to um, call out 
women's sports teams for doing something objectionable than they are men's sports teams because we know women's sports teams will listen. Um, we know that even um, pro women athletes, pro athletes who are women, um, who aren't gay are often outspoken on issues of social justice. The WNBA, for instance, um, their protest, their national anthem protest um, in conjunction with the movement for black lives and Colin Kaepernick was extremely widespread and committed. Um, I, I've been impressed by how Megan Rapino, for instance, um, she was kneeling for the national anthem. U.S. soccer actually made a new policy specifically because of her protest. Um, I think it makes sense in one respect to hold women to a higher standard. Um, women in general are more politically progressive than men, but it, bothers me to see that then LGBTQ fans and women are expected to just sort of overlook any objectionable thing that a male athlete does. Um, and, you know, male athletes are constantly doing objectionable and homophobic and sexist things. Um, and we would never ask their coaches or their leagues to take a stand unless, you know, people are increasingly asking them to take stands for domestic violence. But in terms of objectionable views that they put forth, it's it's never considered to be an issue. And people just have to sort of tamp down that uh, that part of themselves when they want to watch and enjoy pro sports. I would say I, ag I agree with you like 95 percent of the way, like because I think that there have been incidents in the last few years with guys like. Daniel Murphy saying, you know, uh, I, was he with the Mets then? And he's now with the Nationals, the baseball player, saying that he disagrees with the gay lifestyle. Chris Culliver of the 49ers saying that he wouldn't welcome a gay teammate. And those guys, and there have been players fined and suspended for using anti-gay slurs. There is like an increasing um, sense that saying and doing those things is not okay. But I've never seen a suggestion that anyone be kicked off a team right. for saying or doing anything like right. this. Um, and Stefan, I think I'm characterizing your views correctly when I say that you believe that the U.S. women's national team, you've talked about this before, they're role models. They should be held to a different and higher standard. And so I'm curious how you feel like that this this story plays into your belief there. I do think that they should be held to a higher standard. And I do think that it's incumbent now on people like Megan Rapinoe and other members of the team, straight or gay, to speak out about what happened. And they're going to get asked about it. There are going to be um, media availabilities in the next three weeks or two weeks um, when these games in this tournament are held. And I think— Just to it, interject for one second, Caitlin Best, who's written a couple of really good pieces— um, for out, she wrote a piece for Out Sports recently. She covered that Portland Timbers game that you mentioned, the first one after the 700 Club appearance, and she wrote about how Hinkle just dodged the press and refused to engage and talk about um, what she'd done, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and will she be able to get away with that now that she is on the platform? She is as she is part of this team. She can refuse to talk to the media. That's her right. What will happen when Megan Rapino or any other member of the team is asked for her? feelings about what Jaylene Hinkle said and did in initially refusing to to join the team during Pride Month and again went out publicly with her comments. I mean, I think those are the moments where the sport and these players, these athletes have an opportunity to elevate the conversation and to ed educate Jaylene Hinkle, maybe if she's willing to listen, but 
the public at large and sports fans at large because there are it's not just women who are fans of the US women's national team and it's not just um it's not just LGBTQ women that are fans of the US women's national team i mean this is the opportunity that athletes need to seize the podium to make the kinds of progressive statements and 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 try to help educate the public and i do wonder if there's going to be uh pressure from the other side pressure from the Christian and uh, bigot community uh, to say to Jaylene Hinkle, you know, now that you have this elevated platform, you did get the call up again, you did accept it. Now is your chance to hold firm. And if asked, say like, no, I still believe that uh, what, you know, this lifestyle is immoral and against God's will. I think if Megan Rapinoe and Sue Bird get married, then uh, they should ask Jaylene Hinkle to make them a wedding cake. That's what I think. <laughs> there could be some real team bonding there. Now, I think that it's really important to remember and to think about, um, you know, these players are role models. They are very conscious of that, and they don't shy away from it, um, Stefan. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not like Megan Rapinoe is... It's not like you'd be asking Megan Rapinoe to do something that is out of character. Oh, my God, no. They're right. all over. I mean, and Ashlyn Harris, too, sure. who, the goalkeeper on the team who's on this roster and going to be playing with Jeline Hinkle. It's all up in social media with Pride and pro-LGBTQ stuff all the time. I mean, it's that's why it's difficult for me to imagine how playing on a team with Jaylene Hinkle would be as easy as playing with any other player that you have any other disagreement with. You know, this is somebody who just fundamentally and extremely publicly is saying that, you know, one of the most important parts of your identity and your 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 relationship are invalid and against God's will. I mean, I can't imagine the the blow to morale that that might cause. Like you said, Josh, we don't know what conversations are going on behind the scenes, but um, it's impossible for me to believe that this won't affect the team unity in a negative way. Christina Cotarucci writes for Slate. She is also one of the hosts of the Waves podcast. You can listen to her there. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wallace intercepted. They lateral it. Fighting cancer, taking it to Godspeed. Dominant. Touchdown. Robert Hollywood Myers. That was the call in Houston last week of the exciting climax of fighting cancer's 26 to 6 win over Godspeed. Wait, I thought you were going to say that they beat cancer. No, they only beat Godspeed. Cancer has to wait. Maybe next year? Maybe next year. In the inaugural American Flag Football League championship game, flag football, of course, no tackling. You grab a flag dangling from the ball carrier's waist to end the play. The Wallace mentioned was former NFL quarterback Seneca Wallace, who along with former NFL players Jacoby Jones, Justin Forsett, and Javid Best were bested by a bunch of amateurs from New Orleans which means that Fighting Cancer is now Josh's favorite team, 
and quarterback Daryl Hoosh Doucette is now Josh's favorite player. Dom Cosentino of Deadspin joins us now to discuss the demise of the NFL and the ascension of flag football <laughs> as our football overlord. Dom, let's establish our flag football bona fides. The NFL Network showed 11 AFFL games, and the sooner we use the acronym, the better, I think. Had you watched a second of uh, the AFFL before looking at a few videos to prepare for this segment? Because I hadn't. I have to confess that I did not, to be to be perfectly honest. Uh, it was not uh, really something on my my radar, other than seeing you know the story about the the pros losing to the Joes last week, so to speak. Uh, but no, I I, I hadn't. <laughs> it hadn't been on my radar at all. And yet, if you were like me, you were intrigued. Admit it. Because this is fast moving. This is fun. And I like seeing people with, with tassels dangling from their waists. <laughs> I think it's a I good look. I played flag football in college, like intramural. And it, it, it's a lot of fun right, you know, to play. And it, uh, it, it's a lot easier on the body, I would think, than, than tackle football as well. Because I, a chump like me could do it in college. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's fun. I don't know what the long-term implications of it will, will be, though. I actually had seen one highlight because one of the guys on the fighting cancer team was Charles Carmouche, who was a former LSU basketball player who made a great catch in the end zone. And the guy that we heard but was not mentioned in the clip at the top of the segment, the one who made the interception was Harry Coleman, who was a former LSU football player. So there's a lot. This was like a lot of my interests LSU sports, flag football all at once. Like Dom, I played flag football in college and thought it was very fun. I guess my concern is that if flag football becomes the dominant sport, like in the next 30 years, then like when Dom gets really old, he's going to be writing big features about how flag football players are having a hard time getting their like injury settlement money, but it'll be about like turf toe that they're, they're trying to like get paid for. It just won't have the kind of narrative punch. No, yeah, cre- creaky joints in the in the hip and uh, you know and in the in, in the knee, but yeah, I, I don't know that it's gonna it's gonna that's gonna have much staying power with people. Now, this league was uh, created by a, some Wall Street dude a um, couple years ago. Uh, there was like there was like a moment of indecision where you weren't sure whether to say douche or dude, that's but you exactly, went with dude. That is exactly what was going on in my brain, Josh. Yeah. Correct. Um, because you read the quotes from this guy and he sounds like a total Wall Street blowhard. Um, but he's got money, right? And, and he's got investors. And the idea here was to create this alternative. And, and this started with like 128 teams, amateur teams around the country. And they had a long tournament. And you got down to fighting cancer. And then there were four teams of pros or former pros, including like not just ex-football players. Michael Johnson. The Michael Johnson star. was on one of the teams, yeah. And this might have come across people's um, eyeballs last year because Michael Vick played in right. like a demo game. Yeah. And so clearly they're, they're trying – they're doing this the right way. I mean they're trying to roll it out gradually. They're playing in, on decent fields in some cities. Um, they got the NFL Network to pitch in here. And what I think is really interesting, Dom, is the way that the National Football League and USA Football, which is the – youth and amateur organizing body for the sport are buying into flag football 
And whether that's because they are anticipating some diminution in the popularity and participation rates for tackle football or whether it's just, hey, new sport possible for, you know, to fill another block of time on the NFL network, whatever it is. Flag football is kind of ascendant, and I'm being serious here. Participation rates among kids are up like 30% in the last five years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still a kind of a, a back-end way for them to promote the sport. And, you know, but I would think that for the network, at least, it gives them some some easy programming that where, you know, I think there's only so long you can talk. You can only talk about, you know, Aaron Rodgers contract in June and July for so long. It's really the only kind of the only time of year when the NFL takes a nap is this six weeks period between the end of minicamp and mid June and, and the start of training camp, which we're coming upon right now. So it, it's ideal timing for them. It's a way to promote the game without it being the, you know, rough and tumble injury prone, head injury prone type game that, that, that people watch and, and know. Uh, so I, I think that I don't know that they're seeing the, 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 the end of it quite yet so much as it's more just a way to promote the game the closest analogy is to the basketball tournament right tbt where you have these alumni teams and former college stars playing and it's you know inventory for espn during the summer and it's also fun to watch and it's like a well marketed and they've got this two million dollar winner take all thing and the yeah, this, this, had a, and, this had a one million dollar prize for the winner of the championship game yeah i mean it's good marketing and it's smart but i think that this is like a rare example of the nfl actually um engaging in long-term thinking and to maybe it's like 90 percent that they want inventory for the nfl network but i think there's some part of it where they're like all right this is like a good thing for us to like invest in um for the future, you know, when and if tackle football doesn't exist and watching the, you know, clips and reading about these teams. I mean, the quarterback for the New Orleans, the fighting cancer team, an amazing athlete, hadn't played football since high school, is 140 pounds. There's a 50-year-old dude that was a quarterback of another amateur team and who and, was good. And what it made me think about, Dom, is like not only um, is it like kind of fun to see – players like not of the normal body type that you see in the NFL, but just how much or how many great athletes do not play football just because they can't do it physically at the absolute highest level and just how much of a loss that is for the professional game. It's like, you know, so many different people play soccer and basketball and baseball, no matter like how big they are. But with football, it's just like, you can't participate like to have a really popular sport that you like literally can't participate in unless you're an absolute freak is like, that can't be good for the sport or a kicker. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I, I do think you make a good point there, especially with youth, youth participation rates in regular tackle football as we know it, you know, seeming to be on the wane. This is a way for the, you know, this could be, but you know, is the NFL capable of this kind of long-term thinking? You know, are, are they capable of, of that kind of forward thinking that far down the road? Because I still think it, if we're going to see a day when tackle football doesn't no longer exist, I, th- I still think we're a long way from that. Sure. So. Um, and, and beyond the, the sort of the long term implications, because it's not like the NFL has bought this league yet, but they haven't strong armed it either. 
I mean, it's rare that you find the NFL seeing what might be perceived as a competitor that was that was created as a startup by someone that had no connections whatsoever to the league or to anyone in the league, which is the case here. And 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 sort of accept the proposition, not only that, but put it on its cable network. Um, similarly, the NFL has, which bankrolls USA Football, has supported the the introduction and growth of flag football and other modified versions of football at the youth level because there is a recognition that parents aren't signing their kids up anymore. So I'm not so sure that you know this doesn't doesn't reflect the NFL actually being sensible. Um, and being concerned about the future of the game. We can say the death of football is a long way off, but the death of, you know, peewee football might not be that far off. Yeah, I mean, I think we're putting the cart before the horse a little bit. I think yeah. the thing that'll be interesting to see, Dom, is whether flag football might replace high school football in certain certain places. Certain places. I, I think it's so, <laughs> Not so, in Massillon, <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> right. You know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Texas. Florida. It's so ingrained in the... And part of the the, the, the culture of uh, of high schools in general uh, in, in those parts of the country that I, you know, but it could happen. You know, it, it, you know the there's enough concern and you know enough fear and, and enough of a push now. You know, I was on a, a panel in April at NYU where you know there, there was serious discussion about prohibiting football before you know tackle football before the high school level. So what you know what would that do? You know, when you, you you're basically going to eliminate youth football, at least tackling. Um, you know, what what long term impact would that have on the sport? Uh, is a is a fair question to ask. I think. Right, which is which is why USA Football is has flag football and now it has sort of a modified version of tackle football with where where little kids play on a smaller field, seven aside. There's no three point stance, so everybody's head is straight up. So for all of the protestations among coaches, and there are, as you know, they are incredibly strong and dumb um, that football is getting safer, and you know, or the the corollary that that there's an attack on football, there's a war on football. These people are recognizing what they see in registration numbers that we've got to do something to change it, and flag football is a component of that. And flag football, by the way, is also an incredibly fast growing sport for uh, for high school girls as a way to meet title nine compliance. I mean, it makes it easy for, for high schools to, to do that. I, that was another one, uh, you know, it powder puff, I guess they called it, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a, it's been a big thing for a while too. So yeah, you know, you guys could be right. The NFL could be seeing what, what this means down the, down the ranks, so to speak, uh, as they figure out where they're going to go from here. I'm curious, Dom, if like in your conversations with players and kind of following the league over the last few years, if you have a sense of given all of the, you know, changes in rules in the NFL that um, players once, uh, you know, not that long ago would kind of decry and use flag football as a pejorative. Like I found this Bernard Pollard quote about, you know, from what I see, we're going to be running around with helmets and flags on. In about seven years, he said that about three or four years ago. So I don't think we're quite there yet, Bernard. But I feel like flag football is not as much of a pejorative anymore as it was a few years ago. And I'm wondering what your sense is of like, have players started to accept what some of the rule changes are in the league? Or have they just figured out another way to complain about it that isn't invoking flag football? I still think they're complaining about it that, you know, with when the new helmet rule uh, 
was put into effect back in May. There was a lot of confusion about, you know, what players could and couldn't do. And then it turned around, the league turned around and made, you know, because, you know, one the league's head of officiating, Al Riveron, made it clear that, you know, that line play would be affected by the, the, the rule change. And yet now yet the, the league said that has since come around to change, you know, they, where they, I wrote about it last week, where they slid into the rule that, you know, you know, incidental contact with tackling and line play would not be affected by this. So I don't, I don't, I don't know how much of the way the game has been played is going to change very much as a result of this rule, because the egregious hits are still going to be what is going to be penalized, but the routine kind of stuff, you know, and it, which could lead to a lot of the, it could create a lot of the sub concussive blows, you know, I, I think are still not going to be it's still going to be very much a part of the game. So I don't know how much of that that is going to change, uh, you know, unless the league insists on flagging a lot of routine plays and they, 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 they're they sort of talking both ways about it. So it's hard to, it's hard to know. All right. Now we're getting all serious and talking about the NFL and like subconcussive <laughs> blows. I want to get back to flag football. Sorry. <laughs> I like the, I like the, um, the, the format here. This dude, this Wall Street dude, they came up with the rules kind of on the fly. You read some of the profiles, and we'll link to them on the show page, about how the league was created and how they're sort of creating rules sort of out of nothing when some like someone in the office says, hey, maybe we should do it this way. Um, they've divided the field into four 25-yard quadrants. You have four plays to go 25 yards. There's only seven players on the field. It's, there's no linemen. Um, so it's much more freewheeling. And the thing in reading all of this that comes to my mind is the complaints that I heard over the years, particularly when I was working on my book about the NFL, is that it's no fun, that, that there's no coaches in this flag football league right now. And what flag football with these incredibly gifted athletes demonstrates and I think will demonstrate to former players and might be appealing to former players. It is like this release from the tyranny of football, the overprogrammed qualities of football that these guys actually are designing weirdo plays on their own, running freely, lateraling, you know, throwing these pinpoint passes. It looks like it's a huge amount of fun. And then there are like these instructional videos. I watched a couple of them like, showing the kinds of moves you can make the hip drop it looks like a dude's doing a dance he just drops his hips so that you're reaching for the flag and suddenly the flag is down at ground level um it for for former players i can see the appeal much like with the the big three in basketball or tbt um where these guys want to go have a good time they want to still play football but they don't want to get hit in the head anymore well the guys who haven't played in the NFL are going to have a big advantage, right? Because not only have they been playing and like they have mastered this particular form of the game, but they probably don't have debilitating injuries from having played goddamn football for their whole lives. Like, oh, wow, this guy hasn't played since high school. Oh, man, he's going to be at a severe disadvantage. He hasn't well, actually, had he can walk. 12 surgeries. He can, move, he, can, he can run on the field. Wow, that's probably going to allow him to— He has his original to, hips. Yeah. Yeah. You know, didn't have to spend the morning uh, in an ice bucket, you know, or an ice tub, you know, cold tub or, or whatever. Yeah. So I, I think that that's an interesting point, though, that, that the being being a, having adapted to the these particular rules as opposed to, you know, football, football rules uh, can give a real advantage to the Joes, so to speak, when they, they go out there and play. They they are familiar with what they have more familiar with the the wide open nature of, of the game. 
you know. Yeah, it's really no surprise that the quote unquote amateurs beat this team of ex players for that simple reason. I mean, the, 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 you know, the degradation of the human body from playing football for a decade or more is incredibly severe and really not comprehended by most of the public. I also just want to let the listeners in on the fact that New Orleans is the locus of flag football. Like um, when I was a kid growing up, the flag football championships were at the University of New Orleans on the really? lakefront. And I would go. I went a couple of times. It was really fun uh, because flag football is fun, as discussed in the segment. And then one of the first pieces I wrote for Slate back in the day, like, I'm, uh, this was in like 2004 or something, and we can link to it on the show page, was about how this community college in New Orleans, Nunez Community College, had like dominated um, this, the like flag foot, you know, the leading flag football competition at the time because they had all these like old dudes enroll in a PE course so that they could plausibly claim to be from Nunez Community College. And the championship game was Nunez Community College versus another team from Nunez Community College. It's like one of the greatest uh, pieces that I've ever written. Uh, I love New Orleans, uh, the New Orleans connection to flag football. Makes me feel a delight. Well, I think that quarterback for uh, fighting cancer plays in a league. He's been playing flag football for years. New Orleans. powerful tradition down in New Orleans. Flag football. A match made in heaven. Dom Cosentino writes about a lot of different things for Deadspin, including football, but not flag football yet. <laughs> Dom, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for after balls and just so much more flag football stuff to get into. Um, Stefan, you got a little history of the game for us? Yeah, it looks like it started in the 1940s, maybe during World War II, Fort Meade. Were there a lot of patriotic displays on the on the flags of the flag football the flag players? Football, that would have made sense. That would have been more good marketing tie-in. I'm surprised that, uh, that they didn't think of it then. Well, actually, I'm not. <laughs> um, and you've discovered that the college championships at UNO that I was talking about earlier yeah, you, started, you in the, not, started you, in the 70s. You were not wrong. I wasn't full of shit. Wow. No. Amazing. The University of New Orleans, I am reading, held its first ever collegiate intramural tournament in the late 1970s. The success was overwhelming, and it has since developed into the annual National Collegiate Flag Football Championship. Uh, so the guy that I wrote about in 2004, my flag football piece, um, there was a guy named Paul Arnold who kept leading his teams to college championships and this was kind of like like what i was saying before about nunez community college just about the seedy underbelly of college uh flag football this guy was in college for 10 years uh and leading his team to championships paul arnold uh inventor of the paul arnold offense maybe he'll come out of retirement for the afl he should totally come out of retirement uh what is your paul arnold 
Mr. Fatsis. Well, I want to update everyone on my World Cup travels in Iceland. I did not watch either of the semifinals at a gas station, though we did drive by the station in Kirkjabajer Klauster that our travel consultant, Wow, you're fluent. That's amazing. I really picked up the language on my vacation. All right, if you're in the neighborhood, it's the N1, not the OB gas station that looked to have a store and seating area. We watched instead the France-Belgium game at a campground restaurant near the amazing Gulfoss waterfall. The blackboard behind the bar said, this is not a fucking cocktail bar, drink beer. Pizza and salad, excellent, I recommend it. England-Croatia was at the Smijan Brughus in Vik. The $26 pulled pork sandwich, excellent. Food is really expensive in Iceland. As for the final, I'm a little embarrassed to relate this story. We were on the road to Schneefels Jokul National Park and stopped for a late lunch in Akureyri, Iceland's second largest city, population 19,000. Three hours until kickoff, plenty of time to get to our destination. And then my daughter checks Snapchat and shouts, what? The game started. So we hightail it down the street. We missed the first 30 minutes, first two goals. The place was packed, so we had to stand. Can't say it was the most pleasant game-watching experience of my life, Josh. The general ambiance was a combination of beer, cigarettes, and B.O., mostly B.O., especially when one of the Central European dudes seated in front of us decided to put his arms behind his head while manspreading. Vive la France. But the footballing highlight of my trip came a few days earlier in Reykjavik, We had lunch with Bjorn Malmquist, a foreign correspondent for Iceland's national broadcaster, friend of a friend. I mentioned to Bjorn that I'd love to go to an Icelandic league game. Bjorn called up a friend of his who's an official for his favorite team, Viking. And the next night we were picked up by Viking treasurer, Olafur Thorsteinsson. He played in the 70s and 80s for Viking. He had one national team call up, he told us. A 3 nothing loss to Denmark in 1981. Viking was away at Fifkir. Fifkir's field was being renovated, so the game was indoors at the club's practice bubble, one of the many indoor fields that have helped Iceland get good at soccer in the last decade or two. Sitting right next to us was a member of the national team, 35-year-old defender Kaudi Arnason, just back from Russia, I chatted with Arnison at halftime. He played all over the place, youth soccer with Viking, college at Gonzaga and Adelphi, and then as a pro with Viking, and then eight teams in Sweden, Denmark, England, Cyprus, and Scotland. His last club, Aberdeen, didn't want him back. I told him he should come to America. He said he actually tried, but Major League Soccer didn't want him, so he was returning home to finish his career with his boyhood team. Trying not to be a jerk, I noted that it must be weird returning to Iceland. I mean, the Premier League game we were watching was in a bubble in front of like a couple hundred people. Just a couple weeks after playing in front of 45,000 people against Lionel Messi, not wanting to diss his home team, Arneson gave a lame answer. Football is football wherever you play it. So I asked him what it was like to play against Messi. We had our ways of of trying to stop him and, and we were quite successful at it and it's all about not selling yourself if you get caught one way you want against him you just slow him down you, you don't try to take the ball off him it's impossible virtually impossible yeah. where you wait for more bodies to come around and so it makes life difficult and I don't think he got a single chance in the game well Messi did have one chance in the game let's listen to Iceland's national team broadcast of that moment in the 64th minute it was a penalty 
finnst hér Lionel Messi gegn Hannesi taktið að Hannes Messi Hannes er þetta já já I love that dude. He's a former player and he hosted a series before the World Cup that I watched on the airplane, which was awesome. I know Iceland's keeper stopped that. The game ended in an amazing 1-1 tie and the players did their Viking clap thing with the fans, but the hopes of the nation slipped away when Iceland lost to Nigeria 2-0 and Croatia 2-1. Arneson said the team expected to get out of the group. They were bummed. Talking to Arneson, I totally bought into all the hype about Viking spirit and the rugged Norse ethos being as much an explanation as the construction of soccer halls and the hiring of FIFA-accredited coaches for how a nation of 325,000 people made it to the World Cup while a nation of 325 million did not. Here's what he had to say. Uh, there's a lot of heart in the team as well, which, which goes a long way. People people like that when when the team shows heart and it's not we we don't dive around and and, and play like the southern europeans uh, we play a more <laughs> we play a more uh, manly game than that <laughs> manly or womanly because the 19th ranked icelandic women also have that spirit they're leading their qualifying group for next year's world cup ahead of number two in the world germany Iceland beat them 3-2 in Germany a few months ago. But back to Arneson, Bjorn and Olafur and everyone else that I met were very excited that he was coming home. He had just arrived when I saw him. Then he had a slight injury and didn't play in the next game or in the one after that. On Sunday, Bjorn DM'd me and said he was psyched to go see Kauri finally make his debut against first place Valur. And then after the game, Bjorn sent me another message. Update. Kaori did not play. He is leaving Viking for a Turkish team. What are you going to do? He had a good offer. Yeah. You know? What are you going to do? I would not have probably stuck around with Viking either, based on what I saw. Bjorn gave me a hat, Josh, (laughs) which I'm really psyched to wear this winter. Uh, I look forward to seeing that. Josh, what's your Paul Arnold? So on November 27th, the website Football Scoop, which is known for coaching rumors, college uh, coaching rumors, reported the following about the Mississippi State coaching search. Word in the coaching profession is that Jeremy Pruitt remains a strong candidate for the Mississippi State job, but sources tell Football Scoop that Brent Venables has been asked to come in and interview. We've been told Bulldogs athletic director John Cohen, formerly Mississippi State's baseball coach, intends to hire a, quote, ball coach as his new football coach. (laughs) Pruitt and Venables both strongly qualify as ball coaches. Unexplained why that would be. It's just like, obviously, they qualify as ball coaches. ball coaches. Um, So Venables stayed at Clemson, did not become Mississippi State's ball coach. Jeremy Pruitt went to Tennessee, also did not um, become Mississippi State's ball coach. But... Uh, just three days later, Mississippi State had a press conference to introduce their new head football coach. Um, let's listen to a bit of, of that. And this, the guy we're going to be listening to is athletic director John Cohen, the guy who, per reports, intended to hire a ball coach. We were looking for a brilliant football mind. So I remember having a conversation with James Franklin at Penn State University. 
And I said, I know this guy can call plays. I know this guy has an incredible grasp for offensive football, maybe more so than anybody in college football. But I need to ask you this. How about defensive football? And I'll never forget the rest of my life what what, uh, Coach Franklin said. He said, John. And he said, John, Stefan, can you imagine what James Franklin might have said to John Cohen? He might have said, John, I've never met a ball coach like this guy. Offense, defense, he's a ball coach. All right, hang up, listeners. Let's see how well Stefan did. How well does Stefan know Mississippi State Athletic Director John Cohen? And I'll never forget the rest of my life what what, uh, Coach Franklin said. He said, John, this guy is a ball coach. (laughs) Pretty well. (laughs) Perhaps you were helped by the fact that this uh, segment seemed to be trending in that direction. So the ball coach that Mississippi State hired was... Joe Moorhead. He had been the offensive coordinator at Penn State. And as soon as he took over that position, as starting with the 2016 season, they started to score a lot more points, put up a lot more yards. This guy's a ball coach, Stefan. But do you know, really know how you can tell that someone's a ball coach? Because like it wasn't explained by football co- by football scoop. It was just stipulated. He doesn't really explain it in the press conference. So I'm gonna demystify this. For you, I'm going to tell you how you can tell someone is a ball coach. Do you want to know how you can tell mm-hmm. someone's a ball coach? Mm-hmm. If their Twitter handle is ball coach Jomo, which is Joe Moorhead's Twitter handle, he joined Twitter in June 2015. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't like, oh, Mississippi State's looking for me. I'm going to change my Twitter handle to ball coach because I know they're looking for a ball coach. Now, this guy was out front of the ball coach trend. He was the head coach at Fordham. He was not some ball coach come lately, but this was in June 2015. John Cohen knew that he was getting a ball coach. Now, because I'm sitting across from the great Stefan Fatsis, I know he's going to want to know what is the origin of the term ball coach. I've been waiting. So it's most famous um, because of Steve Spurrier. He like decreed that he was the head ball coach. And in his autobiography, which is titled Ball Coach, it is actually titled Head Ball Coach. Um, He writes, people still ask me why I was called the head ball coach and where it came from, although maybe they'll have to refer me now as the former head ball coach or FHBC. The nickname head ball coach sort of evolved over the years and stuck in Johnson City, Tennessee, where I played youth and high school sports. The term ball coach just described someone who loved sports and taught or coached ball of any kind. A group of us guys in high school played three sports under three different coaches. We just called them ball coaches. He's a good ball coach, we'd say. We dropped the foot in football because there are good coaches in other sports. A lot of people used it, not just me, instead of using the word football. Football coaches overuse the word football says Steve Spurrier. He's a good football coach. So I just took the word foot out of it and said he's a good ball coach. If someone coached basketball, he or she would still be called a good ball coach. I once was asked if I could have been a good basketball coach, and I think I could have been. He kind of like goes off a little Can bit I just of a tangent here, here. Can I just say here, this is how <laughs> sports autobiographies get to be like 300 pages long. (laughs) Dot, 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 ellipsis, ellipsis, ellipsis. We'll resume later on that page. At some point, I started referring to myself as just a ball coach. Later at Florida, someone referred to me as head ball coach. I'm not sure who started it, but a guy named A.J. Vaughn from Jacksonville, a friend of sports writer, broadcaster David Lamb, brought me a shirt with HBC on it 
and the nickname seemed to stick. So it's kind of a Spurrier homage, ball coach. But I don't know if you're going to get to this. No, I'm done. It's over. But like, (laughs) what is it? Like, how does it distinct? What's he trying to say? What was the Mississippi State athletic director trying to say by describing him as a ball coach? If a ball coach is the generic good coach, well, every coach, except maybe, you know, hockey coaches are ultimate. What he was trying to say, Stefan, is that he's looking for a ball coach. Clearly. I think maybe you weren't listening carefully. You know, etymologically and definitionally, we have some work to do here because I think there is some deeper meaning. There's a deeper sense to what he was trying to say. And it was kind of clear from the context is that he was looking for somebody who isn't just like some one of these newfangled offensive guru football calling the plays with the headset kind of guys. He wants a ball coach. But do you think a ball coach implies? Old-timey ball coach. Right. Does he there, wants a ball coach. Is there some sort of old-timey headbanging he wants in a the ball trenches, coach. smash mouth football kind of guy? He wants a ball coach. He wants a ball coach. Uh, that is our show for today. We're done. Our producer is Patrick Fort and our intern is Meredith Ellison. So listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. You know who was a ball coach? Zelmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.